You usually don't like get that from sitcoms. First of all, it's not a sitcom. It's a drama. It, it's an hour-long program that blurs genres. You're um, into it. Gilmore Girls yeah. is one of the best television People. programs ever made. Oh. Hello, 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 and welcome back to Center Ed Teaching. So glad that you're here with us this week, and I guarantee this is going to be a rowdy podcast because the the pre-production of this show has already been pretty intense, and that must be for no other reason than Roberta What's is joining up? us this week. Also joining us is Faith. Hello. And back, as usual, is Brian. Hey, y'all. And he has shaved his beard. Yup. <laughs> Just kidding, Brian has not shaved his beard. It's radio, y'all. So what we want to talk about today... I shaved mine, though. (laughs) What we want to talk about today is education and technology. Often we hear about these advancements in ed tech, and this term ed tech is thrown around. And so what I want us to do for the first part of this conversation is kind of back up and say, like, what do we mean when we're talking about ed and technology or educational technology are we talking about schools that are teaching students how to use technology are we talking about schools that are adapting technologies because students are already using them in the world that they're in and trying to help them learn with what's familiar are these two things separate that coexist at some points or how do we actually frame and think about education and technology or ed tech i like the question is it ed and tech is it tech ed or ed mm-hmm. tech? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the the starting with the last, right? Tech ed, that's mm-hmm. what I had when I was in middle school and I took keyboarding. And in, in, my, in the business elective, we could yes. take keyboarding, right? The quick brown box. Jumped over the lazy dog. Jumped, Jumped over, over the, the lazy, lazy dog, dog. Which I had in typing. See? When I took typing right? before keyboarding. I wasn't going to call you out. I know. Okay. I'll call myself out. Um, and the sole <laughs> purpose of the course was to teach people how to interact with the very basic technology that we had. It was mm-hmm. an electric typewriter and then later a word processor. Um, so the, the question about are we teaching people to use technology? And I think that in, when I was growing up, that was kind of a thing because mm-hmm. technology lasted a little while mm-hmm. and the new computers would come out and you could have them for a while and th- you know right now you're, the things change so quickly and new technology is coming out all the time that you know we were just talking um, the other day here we did a focus group for a, a tech company mm-hmm. and and we were talking about is this product useful to mm-hmm. teach content mm-hmm. is this product useful as a bridge to content mm-hmm. is this product the content Right. Are we teaching people how to use the product, how to use the technology, or are we using the technology to bridge toward, toward content knowledge or mm-hmm. cognitive skills? And that was like a lingering question um, mm-hmm. that, that did not ha- it did not, we did not come to an answer at that time. Well, also, I think that when you're talking about, say, your keyboarding class, it's also t- talking about like what education the purpose of education, right? And so at that time, teaching those kinds of skills for actually for decades before then mm-hmm. was also about workforce mm-hmm. and what I'm going to have to learn to use yes. to be in the workforce. Am I going to have to type? And that, you know. And I feel like at a certain point, there was just an assumption that like 
okay, we got it now. Because I don't know any, I don't know very many classes that are like core classes that everyone takes mm-hmm. where the focus is on teaching a technology even something as ubiquitous as typing that mm-hmm. we would expect mm-hmm. everyone to to be able to do but i don't know when it is that kids are supposed to learn like not like touch typing mm-hmm. or or being right. able to right. you know, not look at the keyboard right. um, that if we just think that it's intrinsic now or or if we're just there they're just supposed to pick it up but it's certainly an expectation that we have in the workforce but we don't have a link to it that I know of, a common link to it in, in curriculum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although um, one could make a case, and, uh, and an old colleague of mine, shout out to Holly Brewster, um, uh, wrote a little bit about the idea of replacing math in the curriculum with coding. That is mm. to say that the um, if, if, if we're not teaching math for the purpose of teaching math, but the teaching of math is instrumental toward you know, logic and um, computational reasoning, that all those things can be accomplished with coding, um, computer coding, which also mm-hmm. is a tangible skill unto itself. Yep. And so the notion that, um, uh, you know, some sort of tech isn't in the core curriculum um, is more, I think, a, a, a relic, that not, not a, an outdated relic per mm-hmm. se, but it's, that's how we've always done it. We may reach a, a point where the the skills acquired, the habits of minds acquired through a particular tech class might serve our students bigger picture mm-hmm. than say a traditional, um, a course that is mm-hmm. traditionally in the curriculum these days. Mm-hmm. So if I can tease out some of the things that you're saying, because I think some of these comments may come out as appearing to be separate, but I think they're actually part of this kind of, at least what I'm drawing in my mind, a linear conversation. And that was, you know, technology was moving slower. And so there was this idea that, okay, typing is needed in the workforce. Mm -hmm. You know, use of PowerPoint is needed in the workforce. Mm -hmm. So we have courses that are gonna teach how to use these specific things. And we know like once that knowledge is accumulated, that person is ready to use the technology in the workforce. It may look slightly different. There may be a different version of PowerPoint. You may, instead of having a typewriter, Mm -hmm. have a computer, but the same skills emerge. And Mm -hmm. what I hear, Faith and Roberta, what you're saying now is that actually technology is changing so fast that it's too hard to have a set curriculum. And the example that I think Brian is giving is, okay, so now this means a seismic shift in curriculum, one that is predicated on thinking in the 21st century, Mm -hmm. thinking through coding, as opposed to thinking through math, which might be more of a 20th century curriculum. Mm And so with that kind of frame, it seems then that the idea is that the schools teach the technology, but I think that misses part of this conversation where students are coming so embedded in a technological world. And I think we're also using technology in the examples given as specific hardware or devices, but social media, right, is a part of this. And the internet, which is in some ways this non-tangible thing, permeates so much of their their lives. And so... is that something that schools also teach or is that something where schools say, you know what, this is being developed outside of school. There's no reason for the school to step into this foray. Or does the school say, actually, this is how 21st century kids are learning. And so we need to co-opt some of what is going on here and do that. Sorry, that's a really long question. Yes. <laughs> I think that schools say all of those things. Yes. Different schools say that's all right. of those things. Well, one of the things that occurs to me is that like when I was a kid, we were doing some tech ed, mm. right? And that's what I was explaining. Like, oh, I took this keyboarding class, or I did this, or there's an elective mm-hmm. in business, 
and, and that was something that we could um, do. But when I was a new teacher, none of those courses existed anymore. And I think that there's something to be said about the rate of cultural shifts mm -hmm. in the later uh, 1900s, mm -hmm. which would be like the 1990s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it makes me feel like an old person. Mm -hmm. um, but in the, the last century, uh, and then the early part of the, the turn of the century. Prior to Y2K. <laughs> Ooh, we um, made it past that. <laughs> I was worried. <laughs> I'm touch and go there. 1999. But they throw a good party. I, oh! I appreciate the Prince reference, but I actually did have a Y2K experience. In that you went so, from 1999 to the year 2000? No, right, because there was like, like all the coin disappeared. Did you, did you have like lots of bottled water that okay, was still Okay, we're, we're getting off day? track, so I'm not going to let this happen. I, I, I'm taking a stand. Cool. I'm going to I'm gonna course correct myself <laughs> and not I tell my Y2K story. But did you tell it at the end? It's like a, like a reason to listen okay, to the end. Okay, okay, okay. Oh, I'll yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, it at the end. All right, cool. Sweet. TBC. <laughs> but, but like, so I think that the rate of, that the rate of change in the late 90s and into the early 2000s was so fast-paced that te technology became, you know, computers in many, many homes, the onset of the internet, email, all these things, that it became mm -hmm. part of our culture mm -hmm. and then, but did not become rooted in our curriculum in that where we were we were doing it in the curriculum because it was new and because people needed 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 to have these new skills in business mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then they weren't new anymore and so then it sort of plateaued or disappeared and i think that as a result we don't have um, a national or even a state-by-state -state real clear emphasis on the role of technology in schools mm -hmm. and whether or not schools should be teaching a technology or utilizing technology in order to teach or a mm -hmm. mixture of the two and i think it's causing a lot of strife I, when I was in Shanghai earlier this year, I was fascinated to learn that they had like three major pedagogical standards for their teachers. So like in New York City, we have the Danison framework mm -hmm. that has, mm -hmm. you know, 22 indicators on the full framework, eight that they're being evaluated mm -hmm. for on a regular basis. They had three. It was content knowledge, pedagogy, and technology. Mm -hmm. And the primary focus of their professional development was on technology. And this idea that, like, how are you using technology in your classroom? How are you using technology to teach? Was one of the major national focuses in education. Hmm. And they asked me, they're like, well, what are you doing in America to support, you know, the technology standards? And I was like, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I had to like, kind of like rack my brain to think about like, where are our technology standards, mm -hmm. and where is it that we that policymakers have taken a stand on? how technology should be integrated into classrooms. Mm -hmm. um, it would, you know, there are a few uh, of the common core standards that talk a little bit about, not specifically about technology, which I think is wise because it changes mm -hmm. all the time, right, right. but to say to like collaborate on writing activities, so there are some multimodal presentations, yeah. so you can kind of get into that, but certainly those are not the standards that are really being highlighted. So. To answer your question, like what are many schools doing or even what are mm -hmm. most schools doing? I think that schools who have the resources and have, you know, um, on-level or high-achieving kids are really using current technologies or maybe recent technologies to engage students in learning and to help them to become more college and career ready. And many schools are, and, and, and so you've got like one group of schools that are like, Let's go tech. Let's do mm -hmm. the one-to-one -one laptops. Let's get mm -hmm. 
an iPad for every yeah. kid. Let's get, you know, STEM and robotics and mm-hmm. those that they, and they're really pushing hard that way. And then I think there's another group um, who feel maybe more resistant to it and see technology as it's like um, an entertainment. And, and an entertainment or an interrupter yeah, to education. That's disruptive. It's disruptive. It's something that they have to make rules about. Yeah. It's it's and even to the point of saying like none. I'm not using any as a teacher. Right. We don't need it. Need it. And mm-hmm. you're doing this with your phones and. Yeah. Right. I can't teach because kids always have their phones up. Mm-hmm. Or um, put you know I I saw a sign in a classroom hanging in a classroom that said, "School's a place of learning. Put your electronics away." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Part of the yeah. challenge I think though is this generational divide between people who grew up without a lot without being attached to their cell phones like in their youth and then our current students today and I think that because I didn't have I'm using myself as like an example if I didn't have a personal experience with like having a cell phone at 16 or at 12 um, and then I will look at it and go why do they have that they don't need that I didn't need that mm-hmm. um, it's 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 a disruptor and, and sort of relying on my personal experience as a way to guide my professional practice today. And it's very hard for us to sort of see what are the organic possibilities and uses here um, for something that I didn't have, that I don't really have an attachment to from my youth. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, somebody, anybody though at any age, like, oh, put your phone in a box all day. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are studies that show like we have anxiety. Yeah. You know, you forget your phone at home and you're like, <gasps> So, you know, checking for it, phantom, phantom mm-hmm. messages. Brian doesn't have that. So. No, I, I actually not too long ago went to a, a fantastic uh, uh, performance where uh, before we were allowed into the performance space, we were required yes. to lock away all of our electronics, mm-hmm. and it was the most blissful three hours I'd had in mm-hmm. a long time. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I've actually been leaving my phone at home mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But you know. But so I. There's a lot to tease out here, and I want to actually do it through talking about practicality. And mm-hmm. so if we could talk about education that we've, or technology and education that we've seen in some kind of combination or iteration of, you know, how we listed the way that those relationships can work in the classrooms and talk about those specifically and maybe what were the promises of practices and what were the pullbacks, because I think there's also something here about a teacher's positionality to technology. Mm-hmm. Um maybe generationally as user, as teacher, that maybe changes that I think is helpful to teasing out like this conversation, what are the relationships between the technology that we have and education of students. Um, so does anyone want to start with an example either they've used in their own practice or that they've seen a teacher doing that would be maybe helpful for this conversation? I think you can divide it into two categories, one being like what kinds of apps are available and then like what kinds of devices might might devices might we be using in education because I think that that ends up taking you into two slightly different domains so like <laughs> one thing that I use with my kids when um, I was in the classroom was like we worked on laptops to type up our writing and save and mm-hmm. then they would it was back in the day this is like pre-google but they would like email them to me and then I would um, open them and then give <coughs> Um, comments um, using comments features on Word mm-hmm. and then email them back and then they would read the comments and then like give feedback. So using email and digital commenting as opposed to handwritten feedback on writing assignments. Which is also very common now with Google Docs. Very common yeah. with Google Docs, much, much easier with Google Docs. And that's something that I would advise teachers who are, who are interested in integrating technology into 
any class, not just a writing class, but in any class, that it's a really wonderful, it's a great promising practice. Revision history allows kids to write, write, write without ever losing their work. Um, and you know, it teaches some very basic word processing skills that, that aren't necessarily explicitly taught anywhere else um, and, and can really leverage the values around collaboration, peer-to-peer collaboration, teacher-to-student collaboration, and it just increases, it decreases the space between the student writing and the teacher feedback. Well, and I think going back to like our previous conversation, this is an example of technology being used mm-hmm. to leverage learning, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Because in some instances, you are setting up Gmail accounts for students, but mm-hmm. most schools, as a prerequisite for enrollment, create a Gmail account with mm-hmm. that student's ID that that student then uses and then has that information on there. So it's not actually explicitly teaching the technology. It's saying this is a function of our world, and now we are mm-hmm. going to leverage it to teach practices of writing maybe organization or or things like that and so that makes sense but I want to get Brian riled up so I want to talk actually about cell phones Mm -hmm. so early when I was in my teaching career there was a huge push for using cell phones in the classroom and so there were these websites that you could use that were essentially apps that were called I think it was like you pull and there Mm -hmm. was maybe one other and so what you huh Kahoot Kahoot. is one like where we can like ask a question, and the kids answer on their phones. Exactly. And then the teacher can see. Yeah, Kahoot is one. You poll. There's also um, Pigeonhole is another one. Mm-hmm. Quizlet is that? Quizlet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Listen, we're very techy. I've never know known that Quizlet. We know that, a but lot. Look, you better start swimming, or you're gonna sink like a <laughs> But anyway, but right. So there was this huge push because the idea was that it would increase engagement, right? Mm-hmm. That students would have it, and it would actually the author of the book made the argument, right, that like you could increase your quote unquote discipline or monitoring a cell phone use because the idea could be, okay, cell phones are on the corner of the desk and then when you wanna use them, we'll use them. Like if we're not using it for them, there's no reason that your cell phone should be out. On the one hand, I think that makes complete sense, right? Like you are using a device that's there, but something that always troubled me about that is it seems like using the flashy new toy to use it for excitement without necessarily pushing rigor or pushing Mm -hmm. a student forward. Like a student Mm -hmm. already knows how to send a text message. Like, so I I don't know, I guess I would just like to hear thoughts on like, because I think a lot of the technology, whether it's devices or apps that we see used, kind of flash like what technology can do, but don't maybe necessarily move the learning forward. So. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm completely unriled by this. <laughs> <laughs> he looks unriled. But I will share, it, uh, a, I was working in a high school in the Bronx uh, earlier this year, and I was trying to help a student set up a Gmail account because mm-hmm. I needed to get him onto Google Docs so that we could use do the writing. Didn't have a Gmail <coughs> account. Um, okay, well, let's make one. You need a phone number. Mm-hmm. Didn't have a phone number. I'm like, but you have a phone. Yeah. But you don't have a phone number. He goes, no, it's not. It's not turned on. It's not activated. This phone. It only works when I have Wi-Fi. No, mm. it actually didn't work at all. He was mm. carrying around a dead phone like a brick in his pocket because it doesn't want to be seen to not have a phone. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that there is this technology readily available for every student, feels like it, it's the case to a lot of us. But you know. There, there's a lot of pl- there are a lot of corners of our country which are not only food yeah. deserts but are yeah. Wi-Fi deserts True. and then True. whatever other tech uh, deserts as well. So or, or tech like leaving leaving behind too. I can imagine the idea of I'd rather have 
uh, a phone that doesn't work as long as it looks like it's pretty new yeah as opposed to like you know somebody who's like i still have a flip phone you yeah. know what i mean like that, that yeah that so, plays into it as well so to the extent that as a teacher i might say <clears throat> everybody take out your phone and turn on this app like immediately i'm there are going to be some people who are going to be in the out group mm-hmm. yeah. so mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why I wouldn't lean on cell phones as an instructional technology mm-hmm. in my classroom necessarily. Mm-hmm. Now that said, if you are in an environment where you can reasonably assume that everyone not only has a cell phone but has a smartphone mm-hmm. and has a data plan and mm-hmm. you have consistent mm-hmm. Wi-Fi in your building and all of those things, like if that is a sort of um, tool that can actually encourage engagement with some particular content or skill, you know, yeah. go for it. But to the extent that it's also like an incredible temptation to be off task, um, you know, it starts to get problematic. Um, I forget, it might have been David Foster Wallace, but somebody was talking about how the laptop is simultaneously the indispensable tool of his craft and also the complete distractor that keeps him oh, from yes. plying oh, his yes. trade. Yeah. And I feel this all the time in the writing, not writing of my dissertation. Yeah. Um, and the trick with any of these sort of um, uh, any any screened device is how do you make sure that the thing that's meant to be happening with that device is the thing that is happening and if you can't guarantee that then are you okay with it not always being the case or are you gonna play cop walking around looking over kids shoulders at their screens like this is a this is a huge this is a huge challenge I think I really want to open up the discussion here because I think this is where the the tension between education and technology emerges and they become seen as two separate things because you're talking about people being off task. But if that technology, right, for instance, is a computer that's connected to the internet, that can take you to a whole new world of knowledge. And so is it this idea that that gets locked down because there may be off-task behavior and so that this technology exists as something separate? Or is it this idea that like, well, this is the world that we live in and people have things that they have to do. And so we have part of our learning to use this technology is to navigate Mm -hmm. it, to be effective with when we're using it. Because I would I feel hard pressed for. You know, if a student is trying to attain a white collar job, you know, like go to college as so much of the rhetoric pushes students, that he or she would not have internet at his or her disposal, right? A a, a computer to do that and being able to navigate that. So I guess I'm just curious that why it's framed as in like, this is something that you have to, to regulate as opposed to thinking about like what learning opportunities it may open up. But I think that like the question that you started with was just because we're answering a question with our cell phone doesn't make it automatically mm-hmm. engaging. engaging. Yeah. And yeah. it certainly doesn't make it automatically rigorous mm-hmm. or, or require thinking skills or require a cognitive lift. So the question for me is, let me see if I can break it down. One, technology is a tool, mm. right? Um, and, and in the classroom, we have many tools. A pen is a tool. Paper is a tool. Mm-hmm. The overhead <laughs> used to be a tool. The overhead. <laughs> right? Uh, the, these are all tools that we can use to take in and put out information. The degree to which that information is worth taking in and putting out mm-hmm. is a pedagogical conversation, right? That's the decision that the teacher has to make. So just because a, a multiple choice question is 
on a smart board and mm-hmm. I can use my phone to answer it does not necessarily make it a good question. Mm-hmm. And, and, and answering it on my phone is not necessarily more meaningful or more engaging than answering it on a piece of paper and turning my paper into the teacher or turning my paper around to four other students and comparing our answers. Mm-hmm. And both have an opportunity for distraction. When I was in middle school, students would write notes to each other and stick them in the pocket of the, li- the library book pocket, mm-hmm. you know, that had the little card in it that you wrote on, yeah. and they put the stamp on. And they would stick their notes in the library book pocket, put it on the floor, and then slide it across the room to the other person. Mm-hmm. They would pick up the book off the floor, open the note, read it, write back, and right. slide so it back subtle. and forth. Right. <laughs> you would think someone would notice that, but no, they didn't. The no- <laughs> I won't get into what the notes were about, but... Um, but but like there is always the opportunity for distraction. There is always the opportunity for off-task behavior. And it's the number one reason why teachers don't mm-hmm. ha- have a difficult time letting go of control, whether we're talking mm-hmm. about engaging in technology or group work or class discussion. That mm-hmm. fear of will I be able to, to as uh, a tenant in the Danielson framework that's about intellectually engage mm-hmm. the students, that the students are intellectually engaged. And that's different than having a fun time. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I can have a fun time and not be intellectually mm-hmm. engaged. And I can be intellectually engaged and not be having necessarily a fun and an and, and, and enjoyable time. I can be challenged. I can be frustrated even. But I persist at doing a task because it's intellectually engaging because mm-hmm. I, I want to try to overcome it. But I think that like... Um, the one end of the spectrum is is thinking that technology can solve all of our problems in the classroom. Mm-hmm. That if you just put laptops in front of kids, just put phones in front of kids, just put the iPads in front of kids, and they'll automatically engage with the task because they're engaged in the technology. And I think that that's a myth. The opposite is also true, that technology is, is sort of like uh, automatically a distractor, automatically mm-hmm. problematic, automatically uh, distancing. Um, it's only for entertainment and that's also mm-hmm. problematic mm-hmm. the reason that this is a challenging conversation is because it's both mm-hmm. it is it is a tool um, and just like a hammer is a tool and it can be very very useful in building a house a hammer is a tool that can be used to hurt someone mm-hmm. it can be used to play a game it can be used to create art it can be used for lots of different things and it's the teacher's responsibility to create an environment in which the tool is used to the to, to the best of its ability, right? And even that we can stretch it, so we can use it creatively. We don't only have to bang nails with it, we could use mm-hmm. it creatively. But it should be used for educational purposes and it should be used to move forward. And if teachers aren't, I'm sorry, this is a long no. monologue, but if teachers aren't confident in their own skills in being able to use the tool or confident that students will be able to use the tools responsibly, I think they pull away from using them. Well, in particular, when you're talking about loss of control, that I think that's a very interesting point. Because when you asked earlier, Matt, about like, are we teaching students about technology? And mm-hmm. this, and really, this idea, I, I automatically thought like, are we asking them to teach us? Are we asking mm-hmm. and saying, hey, let, sharing together? So, what are you using? Mm-hmm. What way could we? create something together that mm-hmm. reflects our learning today mm-hmm. and then having students share, Oh, I use this. We could try this. Um, and just thinking through, um, I lost my train of thought. I think you were thinking through about kind of releasing power. Yeah. Like- and so this idea that what is difficult is to let go of that control. Like you don't know what they're going to say mm-hmm. or what they're going to right? 
And that is an art, I think, in teaching, mm-hmm. is to be able to say it's their learning mm-hmm. and I'm, help, I'm providing yes. this environment in which they can learn. And that means sometimes computers, we do it, we do it with our own core coaches. We do mm-hmm. it with adults. Okay, this is a low-tech time mm-hmm. to, because we know this could be a distraction and we have something planned where we don't need mm-hmm. it, right? But maybe other times it is to say, hey, let's use it to its full, the full extent. What can we, we have everything in front of us. What, what are we going to use today? Mm-hmm. I, I was in a classroom the other day. They're, they're experimenting on the team, a team of the same grade level teachers are all experimenting and using Google Classroom. And so every kid had a laptop out in the class and the teacher had the Google site up on the page and they had an opening and they mm-hmm. had a mini lesson mm-hmm. and they had Google Docs that they were supposed to access and read and annotate and mm-hmm. um, and they were doing it all online. And it was very interesting because during the time the teacher was talking to the class, he had just a little signal that said, when you're finished with the opening reflection, yeah, and there was like a Google form or something that they had to fill out, they fill out their form and then press send and it goes to the teacher's inbox. Um, and you, they could see at the front of the class how many students had submitted the form. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he said, when you're finished, just move your screen to a 45 degree angle. Mm-hmm. So what ended up happening is the screens are not closed, which makes you have to restart your machine. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were closed enough <laughs> to keep them on, but not to be that distractor. Because you can't really see what's on the screen. You can't really like mess around and, and go to other websites or play games while you're doing that. And I thought that was a really um, innovative um, teacher move. It was a magic move. That's a great problem-solving and, thing yeah. on how to be able to use the technology right. and minimize the distraction. And I think that this is a... Ch- then it also just builds into another challenge which is that like when 90% of the class is being conducted in this interface, mm-hmm. why do we need the class, right? Like, couldn't the kids have done all of the, could the kids have done all of those things from home? So, so then the question hold, becomes, hold, hold on, but, wait, but then the question becomes, then what is the time in class for? Because I'm not proposing that mm-hmm. they just don't turn into an online class, blah, blah. But to say, how can we utilize the time then when we're together to be together if, if we're able to resolve how to get information, how to exchange information when we're not together, then what do we do while we're, we are mm. together? So Roberta, you're jumping the gun. Oh, my apologies. On where I want to get to. but And so we'll go there in a second. But one thing I just want to touch on is what you and Faith were saying earlier, kind of, at least for me, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. You're wrong. S- <laughs> synthesized <laughs> our first conversation into that ed tech is maybe kind of the most appropriate form because we're thinking about technology that is pushing forward education mm-hmm. and they're not pushing on that. And, and I think the way that you all phrase that makes a lot of sense. But I know, Roberta, you and I were talking before about this Cambridge Analytica stuff that oh. has happened. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah. Part of me wonders, like, is there a literacy of technology that is incumbent upon schools? And so for those of you who may not be as in the know with the Cambridge Analytica, basically you had a researcher who used data that was extrapolated from Facebook to create psychological profiles of people, which was then sold to a third party, which then marketed that information to political campaigns to be able to uh, craft prediction models for who people might vote for or what ads they might be sensitive to. And so there's this whole new world of accessibility of data and information that exists online that, I mean, I'm not sure that we understand. And students who are making decisions online and are doing things online don't necessarily understand. Isn't there a cumbency upon schools to say, like, 
we need to get at the forefront of this and, and talk about how this works and what this means and, and, and things to think about. And so, I, I mean, Brian, I haven't I mean, heard from you in a while, so I want to hear your response. Yeah, it's, the response is yes. I mean, this is this is life these days. This, you know, so much of our life happens online, and if we are not able to navigate the the currents of the mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. information online, then we're doing our students a disservice. I mean, not to do, give too salacious an example, but once upon a time, when when sexting first started to be a thing, mm-hmm. there was this thing: how do we talk to kids about mm-hmm. that? About sharing nude pictures of themselves mm-hmm. with each other. Some people are like abstinence only. Never do that. Well, that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Kids are going to sh- send each other nude pictures. So how can we help them learn how to do that or make good decisions mm-hmm. about that technology? Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps the, the baseline is just don't put your face and your junk in the same picture that you're going to email, <laughs> right? That perhaps, you know, right. Like, right. Right. like think about it in terms of like how our, our students... I know some politicians who could have used that. Uh, that yeah. yeah. But that's an interesting thinking thing that you could but, do is because they're in the moment yeah. now doing this right now. Yeah. And that's an interesting thinking thing that you could do about but, what happens in a year, in two years, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And have them like but, but, and there, and, and to push back against that for a second. Go for it. Mm-hmm. Because I think that that's the idea of, you know, you have your online persona. So here's how you need to create it as opposed to saying, here's how this technology works and mm-hmm. could be used. Now you make the determination upon which you do, right? Like, I think those are two separate conversations. And I think given what we were saying earlier with the quickly evolving technology, maybe having the conversation about like, this is how this data is stored and works might be out of date and might not be as helpful. But I think there's a difference between this is how you present yourself. I mean, that's the same conversation. That's not at all what I was saying. Okay. I'm talking about these are the consequences that are possible if you upload this information to the internet. I mean, look at the 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 hero of the Villanova Wildcats basketball team who just mm-hmm. won the national championship. He was a hero for about 25 minutes until everyone found his tweets from when he was 17 and they were using derogatory terms for uh, queer folk and they were you know some racial language on there as well. Mm-hmm. The internet is forever understand that's the reality now make good decisions it's not about teaching them what to do it's about teaching them about teaching students about what could happen when you make your choices so now you need to make good choices it's like sex ed it's like um, any sort of education that is a moral education and not a morals education it's not a do this don't do that it's a if you do this this could happen so make good choices I think helping kids to understand like the context and then the long-term implications mm-hmm. of, of decision-making. Yeah. But there are a lot of other implications for education in terms of how technology and life are intersecting. Right. Um, yeah. You know, our, our very first podcast was fact fiction and fake news. Mm-hmm. And the entire focus of that podcast was about, like, how do you teach students to, like, understand misinformation when it looks like a newspaper article mm-hmm. yeah. and and that is as important as understanding the digital footprint as mm-hmm. understanding how to exactly. negotiate um, cyberbullying and um, and and how to use technology in my classroom to gain and find information like all of these things are intersecting and I think that was one of the takeaways and, and what I ended up saying to my colleagues in China when they were asking me like well how is America 
addressing technology mm-hmm. in the classroom, I was, I, I struggled to find my answer because my answer was like, we sort of assume that it's everywhere. Mm. And so we haven't really done anything explicitly about it. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of like outside programs or after school programs or different initiatives or different sort of like guidebooks or workshops that um, schools are using to teach about cyberbullying mm-hmm. or to teach about um, bias or to teach about sort of like your digital footprint and understanding that. There's also a lot of stress that kids are reporting um, in like psychology research, stress that kids are reporting about like how to have like creating my online persona and that like middle schoolers are stressed mm-hmm. out about, you know, the selfies that they take and post yeah. and things like that. And, and they're, they're how they comment on other people's that's because right. that's a part of their like social if, dynamic. If this person and, likes too many of your posts, and, then that means yeah. that they like you, that, that, that they're hot mm-hmm. for you. If they don't like your posts, it means they're mad at you. Mm-hmm. Like there's a mm-hmm. whole subtext mm-hmm. to, to, to what's going on. And, and as adults, um, we're often kind of like uh, too little too late, <laughs> you know, but we're mm-hmm. often finding the problems and not... Um, after the fact, um, which makes it really hard to predict what's going to happen next. I mean, and that's how education always is, right? We're always a little bit of a step behind mm-hmm. because we're responsive to the culture around us. Yeah, and so since I sufficiently got Brian riled up, I want to <laughs> throw like one question out there, leave it unanswered, and kind of get to our final topic. And I think your response was really valid, but the example that Roberta gave, I guess maybe was helping me tease out a little bit more specifically, like the question I was asking. So when returning to fact, fiction, and fake news, and you're teaching students to like, okay, these are reliable sources, like this is how you can mm-hmm. check for the reliability. Like that's, that's, kinda, that's kind of one way to do it. Another is to say, here are the algorithms which mm-hmm. choose which articles that you're going to read and these are the factors that we're predicting and it's instead of teaching the the logic of essentially reliability it's the logic of data presentation so mm-hmm. almost like i would say analogous to teaching logos pathos and ethos mm-hmm. right yeah. and like how those can do and so it's almost like a new framework for thinking in terms of that way as opposed to saying we're going to focus on like these indicators and that still may not be clear but I I think that's an interesting question well I just want to go back to something that you said Brian and saying that like when we're not talking about tech ed we're talking about well maybe I'm not sure which one it is but like one of the things that you said was it's like sex education Mm -hmm. that the children's lives are at risk because their future is at risk because mm. of decisions that they may or may not make today that they do not fully understand. Mm. And it is the responsibility of the school to make sure that they have the facts of the world that we're living in right now so that they can hopefully make good decisions. The school is not the sole bearer of that responsibility. Mm. Parents mm-hmm. are responsible. Students themselves are self-responsible. Mm-hmm. Our community structures, our churches, our community organiza- or community organizations, or after-school programs, mm-hmm. we are responsible. But when you know, like when you can see a danger, you can see a, 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 a crack in the road, and, and somebody is headed towards it, and they're not looking, and you can see, and you don't say anything, <laughs> you can't be surprised if, you, if they fall down. And if you're their caretaker, or if you're responsible for them and for their well-being for seven hours a day, every 187 days a year, and you don't say anything, 
that you do bear some responsibility when they fall and break their arm or break their leg. And, and considering that responsibility, similarly to how we consider sex education in terms of the role that technology plays and the implications of engaging in it. And I feel like that's a se- somewhat of a separate conversation than ed tech, where we're talking about like, how can we use technology to yeah. further like educational aims? Here we're talking about how can we educate children about technology so that they can live a happy, healthy, and safe life. No, I, I think that's a really important distinction. But now to kind of sum up this conversation, I want to return to like what you were bringing up earlier, Roberta. And, you know, there's a lot of people in Silicon Valley that are kind of pushing this idea that there's going to be like this singularity where technology and education come together and classrooms as we <laughs> classrooms as we know them will no longer essentially be necessary, that everyone will be self-learners they will be able to teach themselves and learn themselves and all they will need is a screen and the internet at their fingertips do we agree with this is this like the future of education do we and we need to do we do we do we we? very very nice very nice i'll turn to our own dewey oh lord almighty um no i mean my lordy yeah exactly my concern uh, with this, or my question about this, is um, what of the social element of learning? Um, now, to the extent that folk have social lives that exist entirely online, and perhaps um, in having a robust and healthy online social life, one could also have robust and healthy online learning, then great. That sounds awesome. But I wonder about robust and healthy online social lives um, in just at this point in our mm-hmm. our evolution as online folk. Um, so um, uh, be, it, when a quantum of information, that is to say a fact, um, is taken out of its social context or a meaning about what meaning we can make from that quantum of information is taken out of its social context, then... I worry about divorcing fact from meaning or, um, or not having an opportunity to, or not offering students an opportunity to come up, construct a shared understanding or some shared meaning of a particular bit of information. Um, this is where it starts to get really sort of tricky with education is not merely about acquiring information. Um, and can that happen online? Yeah, sure, I think it can somehow. I don't know how yet, but to the extent that so much learning, the hidden curriculum, goes on in schools, well, if we take learning out of schools completely and we put it entirely online, then do we also lose that hidden curriculum? Are we better off without it? I don't think so. But And this is why you know we're making Dewey jokes here, faithful listeners, but we're tipping our cap to St. John of 120th Street, John Dewey, um, and this notion that if learning is not situ- or, or his claim that learning is socially situated, um, and um, it's a claim that I that I, I buy into. So I wonder about this. Now, that's not to say that folk aren't can't be autodidacts who and there haven't been through millennia of mm-hmm. someone who finds some way to gather information and gather skills and can can do that entirely on their own. Um, but then. Like, are they living, are they Robinson Crusoe living on an island, to use, a, um, to use a, a literary example, 
or are they Ted Kaczynski living in a cabin in Idaho, to use mm -hmm. a, a, a non-literary example? Mm -hmm. Michigan, sorry. Uh, well, I want to also tease out the difference between like learning online and being a self-directed, self-teaching, mm -hmm. self-learning. Because I think that there's, like to your point, Brian, there, that I agree that learning is social and it's situated and that in the, in that if you had a business mindset about the purpose of education that we need to prepare people for a college and career, then there is not a career around, except for maybe Ted's, that doesn't involve interacting with people, except mm -hmm. his did too. Um, there, so, so you need to be able to interact with people. Um, if your notion of, of education is to serve the purpose of citizenship, Mm -hmm. and a national culture, then in order to be an engaged citizen, you need to be able to work with other people, you need to be able to collaborate with other people. And so the idea of individualized self-teaching and individualized self-learning where I just cruise around the internet all day and find interesting information and teach myself, uh, I think that we're missing a, a piece of the picture. That isn't to say that you can't have social systems um, online. Um, some of the research mm -hmm. that talks about the difference between online learning um, and live learning and blended learning represents that blended learning is actually the model that has people saying that they learned the most and mm -hmm. had the best experience, that it's when I can see people in real life and get to know them and develop a cohort and then meet them online and exchange ideas online and in person, that, that that's when the most, those are like the highest scored um, types of learning experiences are in the blended model. Um, so I think that I have some reservations about that too. I certainly understand why Silicon Valley would would think mm -hmm. that that's like the is all be all. Um, that would be very profitable for them, <laughs> wouldn't it? Um, it's also it's likely how many people um, in that part of the country learn as well. So it might be their experience as well that, hey, you know what? I did not learn that much in the yeah. traditional classroom setting, but man, when I got free on the internet, you know, I could, I really just went with my creativity or my whatever. So yeah. it could also just be their, their experience as well. I think that's a really great point because that the question is, can everyone self-teach themselves? Can everyone learn on their own? And I don't know that everyone learns best in, individually on their own, mm -hmm. alone with the internet. Um, I, I think that what I tell my son, uh, my oldest son, is that like when he doesn't have a question, when he's struggling with something, that's when he should feel really good because that means he's learning something. Mm -hmm. If you're just, if you're able to do it 100% on your own, <laughs> like what are you really learning? You're already doing, you already know it. And so it's our classrooms and our teachers and our students that are should be pushing up on each other to do things that you weren't able to do by yourself. But if every time you try a task and you can do it very well by yourself, like, that's not that's not learning. That's just doing. Yeah, I mean, I, the only thing that I'll add to this conversation, because I think you guys have said so much that's like wonderful and I don't want to repeat anything, is that if we talk about you know, this kind of learning going forward, then there has to be a serious conversation about resource allocation and resource equality. Because if mm -hmm. that is, mm -hmm. if we take the world currently as it is, that, that does not exist. And so if this, in a, this now becomes a world of achievement that's, you know, further um, evaluated based on those metrics without giving any kind of equality of opportunity because people are at a resource disadvantage when the resource is everything, it's, it seems even more problematic. I, I think you could make an argument to say that, oh, things could be more equitable if you ensured those resources in that way. But 
I mean, we have yet to see in American history where mm-hmm. resources yeah, have been equitably distributed. Mm-hmm. Same so as it ever was. Mm-hmm. I went into a, I went into a, uh, like a storage area at a school the other day, and they had piled up maybe like chest high textbooks that mm-hmm. I used when I first started teaching. So they're twenty years old, and on top of the textbooks were five, ten laptops. Just mm-hmm. antiquated, old, broken. They had like mm-hmm. sticky notes on them that were was like, do not, does not start. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And I think that like to your point, like these are all just tools. The textbook is a tool. It, it, mm-hmm. it fades out of popularity or it becomes old and um, a- antiquated. The laptop does. The challenge with devices is that like you can probably, you can still read an old book. Mm-hmm. But when you're, your charge you don't have any more chargers or the laptop breaks now you have a, a pretty steep investment in an object that has absolutely no value mm-hmm. um, if, it, if it doesn't work and I know that that's one of the challenges that um, some of our under-resourced schools have is that they will make a big investment in technology mm-hmm. but then they get, get a virus or you don't have good Wi-Fi or you don't have a tech person who can set you up with the Wi-Fi password that's 20 characters long or like any number of things like it requires so much on-site regular maintenance and management Mm -hmm. that if you don't have all of those things in place that's a really big investment that goes Mm -hmm. very very unutilized if you don't have intensive training to make sure that all of your teachers understand how to use the tool when to use the tool why to use the tool what to do when the tool doesn't work the way you imagine it to be then they're going to say like thanks for all the laptops (laughs) they sit in the back of the room (laughs) we use them (laughs) to write to write, to write on paper, right, right. you know, and, and I think that that's, like, the resource equality is is really crucial because we don't resource our schools the same way and we can't rely um, on the fact that all students have access to the same resources, even though it seems like we would be able to at this time. I think beautifully summed up. I thank you guys for being part of this conversation. And listeners, I'm sorry, as usual, we didn't come to any conclusive. Wait, wait, we don't uh, get, uh, do we get story. final thoughts? Oh. I do have a final thought, and you have to finish your story about Y2K. Well, I, let's let's go around the room, I guess, with final thoughts. And my final thought will be Y2K. Faith, do you wanna do you wanna start? I'm gonna go after Roberta. <laughs> Roberta, what's your final thought? Okay, so my final thought is, I know this is not the podcast on raising 21st century kids, but it's such a relevant example mm-hmm. that I wanted to share it. Um, last night I was visiting a friend, and I had my kids with me. I have 11, four, and two, and my 11 year old has been reconsumed with his Nintendo DS, and so he's bringing it with him wherever we go and he is walking with it and he is trying to do all sorts of things with it and last night I straight up snatched it out of his hand and slammed it shut <laughs> and looked at him in the eye and I was like you need to stop now and he was very shocked because I don't usually speak that strongly uh, and I don't usually snatch things out of his hand but we were like in the like things were kind of chaotic and crazy and I needed his help and he was just like he was MIA. He was lost in another mm-hmm. world on another planet, completely engaged in his device. And when we were driving home, first I apologized for snatching out of his hand. I recognized that like that lacked a little patience on my part, and I could have handled the situation better. So I apologized. But the main thing that I wanted him to understand was not that he was playing it too much, but that he needed to be able to make choices about when to play and when not to play. And he needed to, when the circumstances changed, he needed to have the self-control to turn it off. And I always say, like, if you can't turn it off, it's playing you. You're not mm-hmm. playing it. 
And I think that one of the things that's true, and I explained this to him last night, was that like in his generation, he's 11, and it's like in your generation, you, you will not be on technology any less than you are right now. <laughs> it is only either going to stay the same or increase. Mm -hmm. And so you need to figure out for yourself at an early age how you are going to manage these impulses, how you're going to manage games, how you're going to manage the internet, how you're going to manage social media so that it does not consume you, so that you are not the one who gets played. Because that is going to be the difference between kids who are, are able to be, I think, like really successful contributing, not the only one, but one of the factors is going to be whether or not I can have self-control over my use of media, or my um, connection with devices, with my connection to technology. If I can use it purposefully to, to learn or to engage or to entertain myself, but then also I can decide to turn it off. I can decide to put my phone in the bag. I can decide to leave it home. I can decide not to post that thing. And then that, all of those things are about my, our own self-control and our ability to say, I'm going to have power over my decisions and I'm not going to be sucked into just one more click, just one more this, but just one more that. Where did the five hours go? So that was my final thought, just that no. that's something that our kids really need to learn. And it's yeah. a skill, um, and it's not going to be helped if we micromanage all of their actions mm -hmm. and it's also not going to be helped if we go well you know kids are going to be kids so they're going to find it anyway so mm -hmm. it has to be some kind of training around self-regulation and some practices right yeah. so i was debating whether it was going to whether i was going to say something about self-regulation so i'm glad that you went first or if i was going to say something about teachers and that's what i would say about this idea of like um self-learning and, and it all going online and um, and I just, I just kept thinking over and over, like, who is a teacher? What is a teacher? Mm -hmm. I recently was in um, a conversation with educators who are developing or have developed online um, classes or workshops. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things we talked about was one person who said, if I just develop this and put it out there and then they just learn on their own, who am I? Mm -hmm. Like, am I a teacher still? Because I feel like I'm losing myself. Like if, if I just put stuff out there. And so, you know, my final thought just is really about like teaching being about creating this environment where people can learn. And I can't imagine that's ever going to look only one way. And the environment is expanding yes. as the technology that's increases. That's right. I got a new phone the other day. Hey! I downgraded. All right. Um, I feel great about it. Um, but uh, the... <laughs> that's that was just for Matt um, <laughs> no but I think this idea about uh, thinking about learning is a thing that happens when a human being interacts with their environment mm -hmm. and those environments are physical those environments are um, imaginative like because I the internet mm -hmm. isn't a physical environment but there's mm -hmm. it is nevertheless an environment um, and those environments are social and this is all we're ever teaching students mm -hmm. is how to engage with these environments in a way that is educative rather than miseducative. Mm -hmm. And I think the potential for both is just through the roof with the, the democratization of um, information technology. Um, and I think that creates uh, both incredible opportunities but also incredible challenges for teachers. Um, I mean, not for nothing, I was at one point in, engrossed in my screen as we were recording this podcast because what I was going to was the... Um, common core reading standards for informational texts and saying if you take those and instead of just change the word text to website 
they all are still 100% valid. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. to the extent that we're just trying to cultivate in students um, a sort of um, intellectual and moral agency that is required to make their way well through this world when coupled with empathy, technology is just a a pencil. Yeah, that's right. So my Y2K story is not worth the buildup that it has now gotten through this podcast. (laughs) But didn't you wait till the end (laughs) to hear it? All right. Uh, But so for those of you who don't know, that Y2K, right, was that all the computer programs were going to be reset to 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, and essentially everything would shut down. It would no longer work. And so I was in the mall of a parking lot at 11.58, uh, I was like nine or ten years old, and at twelve o'clock, the all the lights in the parking lot went out and disappeared. Really? Convinced that the computers had crashed, <laughs> the time system was over, and the lights were no longer on. Needless to say, seven seconds later, boom, they were back on, and Y two K was survived by all. I was on the edge of my seat there. <laughs> Thank you for sticking with us to the end of this week, and we hope to speak with you next week. Bye. Love you. Bye.